0: Hey everyone, it's Carly. 9 to 5-ish is going on summer vacation for the next few weeks. We will be back in your feed with new episodes with some amazing women in September. Until then, please enjoy this episode with Carrie Washington.
1: So it was in my lifetime I had not seen a Black woman as the lead of a network drama. And I knew that if Scandal was not a success... It's probably gonna be another 40 years before we have this opportunity.
0: I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Nine to Five-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everyone. It's Carly. Today, my guest is Kerry Washington. Kerry is an actor who graced our TV screens for seven seasons as Olivia Pope on Scandal. You have also seen her in the Hulu series, Little Fires Everywhere, and on the big screen in Oscar-nominated movies, including Ray and Django Unchained. Oh, and our other favorite movie, Save the Last Dance. (laughs) Throughout her career, Carrie has won an Emmy, a BET Award for Best Actress, NAACP Image Awards, and has been nominated for a Golden Globe. She also was a 2022 Time Woman of the Year. Carrie has her own production company, Simpson Street, and you can catch her in the upcoming fictional podcast series, Prophecy, which she is the executive producer of. Carrie, I am so excited. Welcome to nine to five ish.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I am so excited to have you. So, <laughs> we're going to jump into our lightning round quick questions, quick answers. <laughs> All right. What is the first job you got paid for?
1: Oh, the
0: first job I got paid for was probably babysitting. Same. Finish this sentence. What best describes your work day? Working nine till blank. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Working nine till trying to do better, just to have it be <laughs> an earlier time.
0: <laughs> that, that's an aspirational answer. When was the last time you negotiated for yourself?
1: Oh, well, I have, you know, children. So this morning... <laughs> did you win i i don't always win i learn a lot about negotiating with my kids (laughs) and i learn how to pick and choose battles i learn how to prioritize my my battles i learn how to negotiate with calm and and how to negotiate with heart
0: this is a great advertisement to have kids okay Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, now lightning round, it's it's very truthful answers. Um so that you should be really fast. You, okay, okay, this is the most important question. Okay. Fitz or Jake?
1: Oh god, both.
0: No, you can't okay, you cannot do that. Yeah. You have to choose. Why
1: is this dichotomy in the world where women can't have it all?
0: <laughs> that was a good answer. Fitz Fitz okay, all right. And Jake. Bye. Okay. Uh
1: the Do show's add, no good without both. It's not as much. I a, agree with you. It's not that. as fun without both. You need Fine. you need the yin and yang.
0: I will agree with you on that. Have you ever made jam?
1: <laughs>
0: no. Okay. Well, what is your fla- favorite jam flavor to eat?
1: I love raspberry jam.
0: That is mine. I heard Jennifer Lopez was your dance teacher. <laughs> what routine? Like, what did she
1: teach you? So Jennifer and I went to the same Boys and Girls Club of America in the sort of Central East Bronx. We had a very beloved dance teacher named Larry Maldonado, who was the first person in my life who I knew personally who had HIV and was in the hospital with complications from AIDS. And when Larry started going in and out of the hospital, Jen used to substitute teach his classes So she was one of the big girls, you know, she's, I guess, like about eight years older than me, I think. And she was, you know, substitute teaching flamenco, ballet, modern. That Mm -hmm. is wild. Mm -hmm.
0: What is your like pre-filming tradition? Like, do you have any superstitions or like just things you have to do before you film?
1: Huh. Well, That's a great question. To be honest with you, every character is very, very different and every project really requires me to kind of design a new tool toolbox to serve that character and that story. But kind of the analyzing of the script, the breaking down of the script is the one thing I will not jump into a project without doing. It's kind of the nerd in me, like making sure that I have my highlighters, my pens, my pencils, and different scripts want to be broken down in different ways, but giving myself that kind of academic study time is always really important for me.
0: I love that. So I want to take everyone back into your story, which is when
1: did you first realize that you were going to pursue acting? So when I realized that I love acting or when I realized that I might be good at acting, those were very different times from when I realized that I might pursue acting as a career. That was halfway through college. I was doing a summer conservatory program at Michael Howard Studios and um, in the midst of scene study and animal work and clown work and movement, and um, there was this class called Acting as a Business. And it was with kind of a veteran female actor from New York. And she taught this class where she really invited us to think of ourselves not just as artists, but as producers as marketers as publicists I love this that is really, amazing Yeah and really as kind of the CEOs of our business right like acting is one of those really interesting businesses where I'm both the product and the producer and so to start to think in in those terms it was really important For me. And and the the most important thing that happened that summer was in that class, we started talking about the Screen Actors Guild and Equity and After, which are the actors' unions. And I had already been a member of SAG because I had done some acting earlier in life that, that forced me to join the union. I didn't know then what an incredible privilege and honor it is to be a part of a trade union. And I guess at that age, halfway through college, something clicked for me where I thought the fact that there's multiple unions for actors says to me that I could make a living doing this thing that I love to do, even if I'm never famous. Previous to that summer, I always thought wanting to be an actor meant that you had to want to be famous, that you had to want mm-hmm. to be a movie star. And I just didn't think that that had anything to do with me. Like what I loved about acting was turning into other people, like becoming other people, disappearing into characters. I didn't want me, Carrie Washington, to be a famous person. And I never saw myself being on the cover of anybody's magazine ever. And so it was really this, this knowledge that there were these unions out there that I couldn't make a living doing what I love doing. And I didn't have to want to be famous. That made it accessible. That's so fascinating
0: because we've had a lot of actors on, on this show and this is a, a business and career podcast. So they're on the show because as their career evolved, they became business women. Mm-hmm, and
1: mm-hmm.
0: what's interesting is I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that they sort of went into this understanding the business behind it. So it's really fascinating that you got
1: the exposure so young. I think it is. I mean, I also was very, very lucky. You know, I I stumbled into having an agent when I was like 13 years old and, you know, 10 years later, I'd be hanging out with friends of mine, all of us in our twenties, and they would be desperate for an agent or a manager. So I know that as hard as I've worked and as much, you know, professionalism as I've brought to the job, so much of this is just the miracle of being in the right place at the right time. But I do know for me, being able to think of it as a business and not just as like, I want to be a princess. Like, I guess I thought, you know, wanting to be a movie star is like wanting to be a princess. Like either you're born a princess or you're not. And I just thought like, (laughs) I I am nobody's princess. Like I, I was like, you know, a scrappy kid from the Bronx who didn't really like wearing makeup and wasn't into fashion and just really liked quite honestly, the escape of being able to be other people and tell other stories. And So Princess was not on my agenda. So learning that I could actually be a worker among workers and make a living doing this thing, that I didn't have to want to be royalty, that I could really be, you know, one of my cousins calls me like the longshoreman of actors because I just, (laughs) I love the work, you know, I really, I love the work.
0: I love it. I mean, you, you started off, you said it, but you're like, this is the inner nerd in me. And I love that you're like (laughs) describing like this acting nerd. It's great. One of the things, you know, just in preparing for this interview that really struck me is you seem to be very intentional and choosy about your roles. Is that fair to say?
1: I think you're right. But I want to preface that by saying that has been hard, right? Like,
0: Well, that's actually, that's my question. So most of us, when we enter the workforce, are like, well, I don't know if this first or second or even third job is like really what I wanna do, but you know it's a job and the advice is usually like just get the experience, take what you can get, you'll figure it out more later. Mm. But from reading like about your trajectory before you were like the Kerry Washington, (laughs) like it appears that you were still very intentional about what you did. And I'm curious, like talk to us a little bit about That balance of getting the exposure and experience when you could get it, but also making sure it was what you really wanted to do.
1: I think I very much have had the path where I've said, you know what, this job isn't exactly what I want it to be, but I'm going to take it. However, that notion was based on the money I was making and the perks that I had but never on the creative experience. So I've compromised a lot when it comes to like, you know what, I'm going to bite the bullet and take this one and hopefully I'll make more money on the next one. Or I'm going to take this job that's in a city that I don't necessarily want to be in. But it was always because I wanted to tell that story. Where I was less compromising was in telling stories that I didn't believe in or that I felt were detrimental to the, The larger narrative being told about women or about Black people, people of color, Black women in particular, right? So I've always really worked hard to say no to creative projects as an actor that I didn't want to tell, ideas and stories that I didn't want to perpetuate, stereotypes that I didn't want to embody. But that doesn't mean that I didn't have to bite the bullet and take jobs that I felt like weren't paying me enough or weren't exactly what I wanted them to be. And really it meant that I always have a side hustle because having creative freedom for me as an artist, as an actor is primary. So I never, not to say that I haven't, but I never want to take a job as an actor, as an artist for the money solely. So it means that I've had to have a side hustle. And when I was younger, that side hustle was substitute teaching, teaching yoga, being a hostess at a restaurant. Well, I love
0: that so much because we talk so much about side hustles on the show. Like Danielle and I are very big on them. We always had one. I <laughs> still, you know, my thing is like, I love to sell clothes on the side. Mm, so I I, love that. I'm always consigning. I just, <laughs> I love it. But it's interesting because we haven't really talked that much about it. And I'm curious, what do you think your different side hustles how have they helped you in your, your quote-unquote day job? What are they giving to you that actually
1: makes you better in your day job? Oh, that's, that's a really interesting question. The number one thing that it gives me in my day job is creative freedom, right? Like if I know that my financial solvency is not only reliant on my work as an actor, then I have more freedom to say no and to, to do the things that I just really want to do as an actor, because I have created some cushion around my financial freedom as it pertains to acting. So that's, that to me is the number one benefit. But I think, I think it helps me to continue to think in more grounded ways about the work that I do as an actor by having these side hustles, right? Like when I'm in the world of Neutrogena, I'm thinking very strategically about our consumer, and about who's buying the product and what's missing in the marketplace. And it's helpful for me to take that muscle into my work as a producer. And when I hear a pitch say like, boy, I really love that story idea, but I'm not sure who's going to see that, right? So it helps to three-dimensionalize how I approach my work as a producer to have the side hustle. It also just helps me to be in community and in conversation with the consumer in a different way, you know?
0: You... Are known for your civic engagement, your political activism. And you've said in the past that you haven't been able to divorce your political ideology from your job and the roles that you've taken. What does that mean in your career? Like, how Mm -hmm. has that actually impacted your career?
1: Yeah. When I think about how the business has evolved over the past few decades, and in particular the last handful of years, I think we are having a growing awareness that for our storytelling to be complete, as a culture, we have to make sure that the stories are being told from more than one perspective. And we have to make sure that our heroes represent more than one community, right? So when I first came into the business, it was much more common that most stories were told from the perspective of a straight, white, male, cisgender, heterosexual guy. (laughs) And, And that that perspective was the perspective, right? That was the hegemonic, overall idea of how we should all be perceiving story and engaging with content. And I I think where we continue to evolve to understand that really the magic of storytelling is in the shifting of point of view, the shifting perspective. So for me as a Black woman, I guess I say that I've never been able to divorce my politics from my art because if I think of myself as central to the story. And I'm always central to this, even if I'm playing like, you know, fourth girl on the right in the back, (laughs) like to me from where I'm standing on stage, I'm the center of the story. I I have to be (laughs) like, otherwise I'm not going to get the job right. Like I, I have to, I have to matter to myself on stage or in whatever scene I'm in, in order to bring the best work forward. That's such
0: good advice that you have to matter to yourself. I think, you know, a lot of people sometimes feel like the cog in the wheel in a bigger mm-hmm. corporation or um, they're part of something bigger. And it's so important to what you just said identify that like you are the center of like getting your job done. And what right. your job is, no matter how big or small it seems to, to others or to you, is important and integral to that, that bigger outcome. Yeah. So I love how you just articulated that. You've said, I think it was on the Today Show, that you said you often have felt like you had to be the face of race throughout your career. Talk to me how that has weighed on you and where you, you think that Hollywood needs to continue to change so that that doesn't feel like a burden, but actually feels like it more of an opportunity for others.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it really connects to the last question, which is great because I don't think I... I fully answered your question that it's, it's, it really is the same. It's sort of two sides of the same coin, you know? So if, so if I'm centering myself and I'm saying I matter as a black woman, that is a political act, right? For any of us as women to say it as a person of color, to say it as a, as a m- member of the queer community, any member of a marginalized community. When I say it's my story, I'm at the center, I matter That's a political act. So whether I wanted to be a political artist or not, just the fact that I was determined to bring full humanity into my characters meant that I was. And I think it was perceived even more so because the roles, the opportunities for substantive roles 10 years ago were fewer and far between. So those of us who had an opportunity to really now be at the center, to be number one on the call sheet, to be the lead actor in a project. We suddenly felt the pressure of being the face of the race because there weren't a lot of us. Now there are so many black women or women of color who are number one on the call sheet across multitudes of shows. Not that any of those shows are any less important or any of those performances, any less dynamic or captivating, but there's less pressure to have it be a particular thing that everybody else needs it to be because we have more outlets. We have more opportunity. It had been almost 40 years since there had been a black woman as the lead on a network drama and everybody was talking about it. And I was not 40 at the time. So it was in my lifetime. I had not seen a black woman as the lead of a network drama. And I knew that if scandal was not a success, it's probably going to be another 40 years before we have this opportunity. There's no way that I should have been. I should. No, I mean not that's unimaginable that pressure. pressure. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly.
0: That's unimaginable and unfair pressure. And also, you and Shonda, like you made history. And to your point, like some of the programming that we see today,
1: and also where we still need to see the, those changes happen. We well, have I just want to say. Let me yeah. just say. For me, when I think about the the history, I think a lot about Viola's win. You know, when Viola became mm-hmm. the first Black woman to win an Emmy for leading a network drama, what I remember is sitting in that auditorium with tears in my eyes, watching Viola's incredible acceptance speech, but being nominated alongside her and alongside Taraji P. Henson. So here we had gone from like, haven't seen it in 40 years to like, half the category is Black women. and. It's just an honor to be a part of history in that way, that a history that's not just mine, but a history that's truly communal, right? Where like, we march together forward as women of color and as women in general. When we link arms and walk together, there's no stopping us.
0: It's an amazing thing that you're describing. And in a, you're talking about many very strong women, some of whom we've had on this show, Taraji. I and mean, when we talk about scandal, you know, We've also had now, you're the second Olivia Pope we've had on because we had Judy Smith on, the Ooh. woman who the show is based off of, who's a wonderful friend of, of us in the company. I am curious, walk me through your process of learning how to be Olivia Pope, like learning how to turn Judy's background into this character and what that was like, because it is based on somebody.
1: You know, it's funny. I've played a lot of characters that are based on real life people, whether it was Kay Amin, Who's from Lasky King of Scotland, or Della B from Ray, and playing Anita Hill. Like I've spent a lot of my career playing real life women or women inspired by real life people. And it is an extra stress.
0: <laughs> I can't even
1: imagine. Um, in particular, if they're still alive. And um, and even if they're not, if the people who love them are still alive. But it's also a little bit of a bonus because I have more research to lean into. And again, like the actor nerd part of me really, really loves the research. I love to work like a social scientist. That's what I studied in college. So when I'm figuring out who a character is, I'm trying to figure out like, what's the culture? What's the thinking? How did this person become who they are? How is that expressed through their social mores or their identity choices? those are the kinds of questions that I'd like to ask. So when the person exists, there's so much more to observe, right? Like it's much easier, I think, to study a tribe that's still in the world as an anthropologist than to study a tribe that only existed in Mesoamerica. So it's really fun. It, it's, it is more pressure because you can be fact-checked by the tribe themselves, but it's really inspiring to have the person as a, as a jumping off place.
0: Of all the the characters you played that are based off of somebody, what's been the most challenging to feel like you have to nail this right? I think
1: Anita Hill. Yeah. I think because Anita Hill wasn't, I guess I'll say it this way, Kay Amin and Olivia Pope, they were very much inspired by real life people. There was a lot of creative liberty taken with both of those characters. And they were kind of stand-ins for a few different women. And Dela B Robinson from Ray. I mean, what a, what a tremendous woman. But she too also in some ways was a stand-in for several women. Anita Hill is the one and only. And she's so iconic. And those moments were so iconic. So it definitely felt like a lot of pressure to try to embody something that was so easy to watch in documentary form or in, in archival form. But I also felt like it was so important to bring that performance, that story forward in a more narrative, entertainment-based container so that we could have the story exist and be part of the conversation in a larger way.
0: We've talked about a lot of kind of the different hats you wear and the different stressors that go along with it. So how do you find time to keep yourself sane, (laughs) find time for yourself um, and recharge?
1: It's a great question. Um, my therapist says the same question for me every week. <laughs> Surprise!
0: She plant, she planted this question.
1: <laughs> it's a he, actually. I have a Damn, male therapist, okay. which I know is rare <laughs> for women, or sometimes. But um, yeah, I I it's something that I would say is a practice. It's like I think that self love, self care is a practice. It's not something that we just arrive at and we like land the plane and we're one and done. I think therapy is one way that I just keep tabs on how I'm doing. It's one way that I check in with myself. And, uh, for me, actually fitness is another place. Like what do you do exercise? I do a lot of Pilates. I do a lot of walking um, Carrie,
0: we have the exact same things that are yes. helping us.
1: <laughs> I love it. Um, I love to swim. I'm a big swimmer. Wait, Carrie, this is my whole list. Is it really? Yeah. Do well, you this bake? Because my... that's my other one. I do. I do like. I like to cook and bake. Right now, I'm actually in the process of fight training. Like I'm training oh, okay. in. Okay, this is multiple. Where we okay, We have
0: now. We've now well, bro- broken apart.
1: This is. I'm. I'm learning multiple different martial arts for a film that I'm going to be doing this fall. And so that has been, That is awesome. This, yeah, so this has been a really tremendously stressful time, but I also have like more outlet for kicking ass than I've ever had in my life. That, and, I'm so um, jealous. That's yeah, amazing. <laughs> it is really fun to, um, I don't know, I don't think of myself as a warrior. You know, I'm not a fighting yeah. person. So it's really a great exercise for me to take on some of that energy. And I do feel like it is serving me. In my life, in other ways, you know, that I love that. Bring that vibe around.
0: So tell me the vibe you're bringing to prophecy. Mm. Skim what prophecy is about.
1: It's a narrative podcast series. So the premise is what if all of these stories that we have been reading in the Bible for hundreds of years, what if they weren't tales about things that had happened in the past? What if they were events that were unfolding? right now in the present moment? What if that document was a prophetic document outlying our future and the future is now?
0: This is blowing my mind. It's <laughs> so My heart just cool. started racing as you started talking. It is
1: so, I mean, that's how I felt when the, the writer, Randy McKinnon came in and pitched us the, the idea. And I was like, Slowly, slowly. Like yes. it just was such a, especially because we're living in this time of like, Right. I'm you know,
0: like, anything's possible. <laughs> yes.
1: We're living in, in the time of climate change, you know, viruses and locusts. And it's just like, we're here. We're in this moment. So it felt so real. So I play a woman whose name is Virginia, but whose middle name is Mary. And I find myself pregnant. And I don't know how that could have happened because my husband is infertile. So there are these like real life people whose stories begin to look a lot like what we've read in the Bible and how we find each other and navigate this phenomenon. Wow. What
0: are you excited for? What's next? What's after prophecy? What's coming up for you?
1: I'm really excited that we're creating material across multiple different mediums and platforms. So on Audible, we have this podcast deal and the prophecy is our first narrative podcast to launch. We're super excited about it. I love the podcast space. My company Simpson street is named after the street in the Bronx that my mother grew up. Oh, on. I love that. Oh, uh, thanks. She talks about as a, as a little girl listening to radio plays. And so I'm really enjoying the idea of kind of the nostalgia of bringing back the radio play and the sensorial relief of engaging with material in just this one way but also we have a series on YouTube called The Street You Grew Up On. And in that YouTube series, I talk to lots of people that I love and respect and admire about the street that they grew up on and kind of what the once upon a time is in their lives. We have a series on Hulu that's launching this fall called Reasonable Doubt. And I'm not in that series, but I directed it and am executive that's producer. So and that. That I'm also really proud of because the creator of that show is an incredibly talented writer named Rama Muhammad. She's a total badass. And we came up through the ranks together. So she was an early researcher in the first season at Scandal. And yeah, and she became an EP through the life of that show. And then she came and worked on Little Fires Everywhere for Reese and I. And now this is her show. She's created the show.
0: Well, this might be your answer, but my last question is who (laughs) should we
1: have on the show? Rama Mohammed, She's incredible. <laughs> Can you introduce <laughs>
0: us? She sounds amazing.
1: Absolutely. I would love to. I would absolutely love to. She's thank such you. a gem.
0: I love it. Carrie, what a privilege to be able to talk to you. I'm so excited for this podcast and love talking about where you've come from and where you're going. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Likewise.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.
1: And we've also got another podcast, Pop Cultured with The Skim, where each week we're covering the pop culture moment everyone's talking about. New episodes drop every Tuesday.